Well, we are introduced to light and darkness on the very first day of God's creation in Genesis chapter 1. Listen to these verses. Genesis 1, 3 to 5, and God said, let there be light. And there was light, and God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness, and God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. Light is fundamental. It's an essential part of our lives, and it is fundamentally good. It's a gift from God. And so on this first day of creation, God separates the light from the darkness And when that happens, it's the first of many opposites that we see, many counterparts that we see in the creation account. Light and darkness, heaven and earth, land and sea. But beginning here in in these verses, verses 3 to 5, light and darkness are the most basic counterparts. And as you continue to move through Scripture, you encounter this metaphor over and over again, light and darkness in opposition to one another. There's probably no image or metaphor that is used more consistently in Scripture to describe the separation between what is good and what is evil. God is light, the Bible tells us, and in him is no darkness at all. Light is the realm of what is, what is good. It's the realm of sight, of comfort, of goodness. Darkness is the realm of sin and fear. In the Gospel of John, right off the bat, Jesus is called the light of the world. And he comes to give men light. That is his mission. And he comes to bring them out of darkness. And as he comes, sinful men respond in a particular way to his light. They certainly don't embrace it. John chapter 3, it says this, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. In Matthew chapter 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells his followers to let their light shine. And just a few verses earlier in Matthew 4, Jesus is called the light that has come into the world. So they are to reflect his light and let their light shine into into the world. What that means is doing good works so that people will see their good works and will honor and glorify God because, because of who they are and the change that he has wrought in them. And so with all of that background, and there's a lot more that I didn't cover, it comes as no surprise, or it should come as no surprise, that in Ephesians chapter 5, that Paul, talking to believers, telling them to walk suitably to their calling, to have their daily lifestyle match their calling, it should come as no surprise that one of the commands he gives them is to walk in light, to reject the darkness and to make sure that they're walking in light. So open to Ephesians chapter 5, the passage Marcel read to us this morning. Verses 7 through 14 is where we're going to be. And we're going to learn today from Paul's next command to walk. He's used the same command over and over again, walk. 
and now he gives us a new variation on it. We've seen that we're to walk in unity with one another in the body of Christ. We're to walk in holiness as changed people. We are to walk in love toward one another. And then here, we are to walk in light. And all of these sections, all of these commands of walking in these particular ways are pushing us toward this overall goal of having our lifestyle, our, our ethics, our daily deeds and attitudes and actions match the calling that we have received through the Lord Jesus Christ. But what's beautiful about, about Paul's work here in chapters 4 to 6 is he gives us all these different slight variations on this command to walk. And so he's sort of filling out this full picture of what it means to walk suitably to your calling. You walk in unity, holiness, love, and walk in light. And so today we're going to look at this command to walk in light. And then next time we'll see another command, but don't look ahead. We'll get there next week. So this, today we're going to see two actions necessary to walk in light. Sorry, three is on there. I originally had gone to three and then I pared it down to two, but I apparently left the three up there. So it's not three, it's two. Two actions necessary to walk in light. And the first one of those you can see is in verses seven to 10. Practice discernment because of who you are. Now, one of the things that's interesting, I think, about the way that we preach or that I preach on Sunday mornings is we take a particular passage of scripture, we try to explain what's going on in that passage, give you the overall theme, uh, some points to help you understand that theme and what Paul's trying to do. And we have to take a, a smaller chunk of scripture in order to be able to study it thoroughly. There's a lot more we could even say about these passages, but we try to make the main point clear of each passage. But you have to remember as we're doing that, that each of these passages is a part of a whole. And so as this letter would have been delivered to the church at Ephesus from Paul, they would have read this entire letter publicly. And so you get the whole sense of the letter as you're sitting there listening to it. And so I would encourage you to go home and read the entire letter, even on Saturdays if you can, to prepare for what we're doing on Sunday mornings. But I say that to say every text that we study, verses 7 through 14 are no different, fits into the broader goal of what Paul is trying to accomplish. And so you have to read each passage in light of the whole. And so all of these different commands to walk that Paul gives us, they all fit together for us. And you can see that here. Look at verse 7. Therefore, do not become partners with them. So he's building on what he's just said, what we studied last week in verses 1 to 6. It's flowing out of that. And so in verse 6, you can see there, he says, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, these attitudes, these sinful tendencies that people have, that they act on, because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. And so he's talking about the wrath of God coming upon unbelievers, on the sons of disobedience, on those who pursue disobedience in their lives. And then he flows immediately from that into this next walking command that he gives us in verse 8. Verses 7 and verse 8, and this is what he says, Therefore, because of the wrath of God coming, do not become partakers with them. 
For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. And so there's, there's really two motivations here to not become a partner with them. First of all, what he gave us last week was their ultimate end. What's going to happen to them is they're going to suffer the wrath of God. And so don't partner with them because of that. You know what it means to partner with some. You understand with someone, you understand what this looks like. You share in their goals. And so because you share in their goals, you work together toward those goals. You are partnering with them. And so what he's encouraging us here is he's saying, look, it can be tempting to have the same goals as unbelievers and to partner with them in order to pursue those goals because sometimes their lifestyle looks appealing and attractive to us, but remember their end. Remember that they're under the wrath of God. And so don't partner with them. Don't pursue the same lifestyle that they have. Don't join with them. And so there's one motivation that says don't join with them because you're You're seeing what's going to happen to them under the wrath of God. But there's another motivation that's sort of a more positive motivation that he gives here. For, he says in verse 8, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Before you came to Christ, it's not just that you were walking in darkness. He says here, you were darkness. When you came into this world... As an unbeliever, tainted by original sin, you were a living, breathing specimen of darkness. You exhibited to the world what darkness does and what it's like. That's who you were. You were darkness, but he says, now you are in the Lord. You see that language here. It's the language of union with Christ that we've seen throughout the book of Ephesians. You not because of your own righteousness, not because of what you have done, but you have been joined to Jesus by grace through faith and you are partnering with him now and his righteousness has been applied to you and because of that, you are light in the Lord. You're a different person now. And this change in who you are from Darkness to light means that the daily dynamics of your life have changed. And they have changed at a fundamental and a core level. The change in you is like a person who has just walked out of prison. Everything is different now. And that's why he says what he says in the second half of verse 8. Look there. Walk as children of light. Because of this change... Walk accordingly. I mean, it's probably getting old to you, but that's okay. This is the same theme we've been talking about throughout the book of Ephesians. This is the whole idea of the the whole series. Recall that you are no longer darkness, you are now light, and react accordingly. Walk in light. Walk differently now. Okay, Another walking command, that's great, Paul, but what do you mean by this? What does this functionally look like in my daily life? What does it specifically mean to walk in light? Well, he tells us in verse 9 and verse 10. Look first at verse 9, almost a a little parenthesis there. He's going to explain it to us. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. 
He uses this language of fruit there. If you remember back in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says that you will know a tree by its fruit. If it produces good fruit, it is a good tree. It is a healthy tree. And if it produces bad fruit, it is not a healthy tree. It's a sick and a dying tree. In Galatians 5, Paul uses the language of the fruit of the Spirit. When the Holy Spirit dwells in you and works in you, certain kinds of attitudes and dispositions and virtues pop out. They show up. They demonstrate themselves to others so that they can see them. There's visible fruit that takes place. And so here he says there's fruit of walking in light. When you've changed from darkness to light, there's a certain kind of fruit that begins to show up in your life. And it is defined by these three qualities that he gives here. How do you know you're walking in light? Your actions, your loves, your attitudes fit into these three categories. Verse 9, the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. Now, goodness is a word that we use for all sorts of things. That was really good. Man, it almost means nothing because we use it so often and for so many different items and things in our lives. But according to Ephesians 2.10, you and I are to walk in good works. We've been saved for good works. So what does that mean? We've been saved for works, actions that are beneficial to other people. And that's what this broadly speaking means. It means to be beneficial for another person. It's something that I do or an attitude that I have that benefits or serves or helps someone else. But in order to know if my lifestyle is exhibiting the fruit of goodness, things that are beneficial to others, I have to know what's beneficial to other people. And that means knowing how God has made us and what he has created us for. That means knowing what we need and so that you and I can perform actions and have attitudes that are beneficial to others. They meet the needs that the other person has. And he certainly has covered a lot of that in Ephesians 4. But the second fruit here of light is righteousness or rightness. What is good and what is right. Righteous actions are just actions. Actions of justice. What this means is in your relationships with other people, you are treating people in a just or a right manner. You're doing the right thing for them or to them. They're getting what they, in their life situation, deserve as a person who is made in God's image and has been created by him. You do what is right. The last fruit here is what is true or the truth. We saw in Ephesians 4, verse 15, that you and I as believers are to speak the truth in love to one another. And what this means is that you and I deal in reality. We talk about things as they are. Our actions reflect reality as it is. And that's what it means here to, to have fruit that is true. Now, as you look at these, I have to admit, when I look at these words, these are really broad categories. And it's almost a little bit vague, you know? Good, right, true. Man, that's, 
That's really vague to me. I don't really understand exactly what it means, and I can't sort of categorize all of my actions and put them in these particular categories. And so it's kind of hard to do this. And that's, that's why Paul tells us what we need to have in order to know what is good and right and true. And that's in verse 10. Look there. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. And so you and I need discernment if we're to walk in the light. And what is discernment? Discernment means to scrutinize something to be critical of something, to be able to separate things apart and see the true nature of something else. But it, it's not in a negative way. Discernment here is to scrutinize something with the goal of approving of it, of coming away with the best parts of it and finding what is good and helpful. And he's just told us what is pleasing to the Lord. He says, You try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord, and he's just told us what's pleasing to the Lord in in verse 9. And so sometimes today you'll hear people talk about discernment ministries or, you know, uh, talk about discernment in a very negative way. Like they're always being really negative about other Christians and finding out what's wrong with other people and what they're doing. Well, biblically speaking, discernment is actually tilted toward the positive, and toward affirming what is good and right and true. Discernment is actually looking at what's in front of you and pulling out what is beneficial. And yeah, you, you will have to put away what is not beneficial and what's evil, and we'll see that in a few minutes, but the heartbeat of discernment is to say, yes, this is right, this is good, this is true. You can see this in one of the most famous verses in the Bible, Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing, it's that same idea, testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so you're exercising your scrutiny in your own life to be able to determine what is good and what is right and what is true. Now, this is the hard part about walking as a believer, Because you and I encounter situations every day, every week, that do, they're just not directly addressed in the Bible, you know? You can look for the verse in the the concordance in the back that has to do with this life situation. You're like, do I sell my house at this point? Do I buy this new car? And you're, you're just, it's not there. I don't know exactly what to do. That is where you and I need discernment. And that's what Paul is saying here. You're not free to do whatever you want in any situation if it's not directly addressed in the Bible. What you do is you cultivate a life of character and virtue as you learn the scriptures, and that flows out into who you are, all of which is based on the change that has been wrought by the gospel. And then as you're growing in grace and knowing the Lord Jesus, you're able to exercise discernment. And you're able to pinpoint what is good and what is right and what is true. And that whole process takes place as we're matching up our attitudes and our actions against Scripture. And we are immersing ourselves in the Bible. And we're looking for good fruit and we're clinging to that good fruit in our lives. And so to walk in the light 
means to hold my lifestyle, my attitudes, my desires up, to scrutinize them against the standard of what is good and what is right and what is true, and then to keep and approve what matches God's word and what is pleasing to God. That's the first action here that is necessary to walk in the light. It's to cultivate, to practice discernment because of the change that has been, been wrought in you. The second action that is necessary here, you can see this in verses 11 to 14, sort of the counterpoint to that first one is to expose darkness because of the shame that it brings. So this is the opposite side. Verse 11, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. So you saw back in verse 7, Paul says, don't be partners with the sons of disobedience. Don't participate in their lifestyle. Don't be attracted to the way they live life because you're light, not darkness anymore. And now he's saying, not only are you not to be attracted to their lifestyle, but you need to be careful in your own life and in the lives of those around you to not let the works of darkness begin to take hold. There are specific actions, there are specific attitudes that can pop up in our lives, even as believers, that are works of darkness that we need to expose We need to bring to the light. Now, it's hard to imagine living here in Detroit of deep, deep darkness being outside at night because of all the city lights and the street lights. You're never really in complete darkness here. But if you were to come with me to Central Virginia, where we lived for seven years before we moved here, and where I grew up, and you were to go with me out to the Blue Ridge Mountains and we were to take a hike at dusk on one of the trails that's out there, you would begin to understand very quickly what darkness really means and how difficult it is to walk in darkness. There's no lights, there's no city glow off in the distance. It is dark. And it is difficult to see the ground in front of you. And it is nearly impossible to walk on these trails at nighttime because the risk of injury is all over the place. I mean, you, you can, you've got roots sticking up that your foot can get caught in. You've got uneven trails, loose gravel on the trails. There are holes that you can twist your ankle in. There are steep drop-offs that if you're not careful, you can take a step over, and before you know it, you're sliding down a hill, hitting all sorts of, of rocks and trees on the way down. The list goes on and on. It's tough to walk in darkness, but if you and I are walking along that trail and you have a flashlight on you or I have a headlamp on me, then it's, it's way easier. You can expose the dangers that are in front of you. You chase the darkness away with the light. And that's exactly what Paul is calling us to do here in verse 11. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Expose the dangers in your own life. Shine the light of what is good and true and right on the darkness in your own life and 
I think here he's exhorting us to do this in the lives of those around us. And I think he's specifically talking here to believers, dealing with other believers. He's not trying to get us to sort of expose the darkness and all the unbelievers around us and be worried about sin that's happening in every single person that we come in contact with. That's not what he's calling us to here. Instead, what he's saying is to walk in the light, we need to be attentive and careful to the darkness that pops up among others within the body. So what does it mean to expose the darkness in the life of another believer? Well, I think it means that you speak the truth to them, as we saw in Ephesians 4. You speak the truth in love. You help them to see the danger. It means you bring clear biblical conviction to them with the word of God. And there's an element of rebuke in there. Do not keep walking in this darkness. Turn back to the light. Why? Well, look at verse 12. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. As those who have been called out of darkness and into light, it is not appropriate, it is, not, it is shameful to cultivate a lifestyle of darkness, to embrace the works of darkness. I mean, you saw this in chapter 5, verse 3, with sexual immorality. It must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. You see this other places in Ephesians. It's not suitable. It's not fitting. Because your light, these works of darkness, are not appropriate for you as a believer. And so he's calling us here to love one another enough to expose the works of darkness. Now, you might be sitting there thinking, that sounds awful. (laughs) And that sounds judgmental. That's terrible. I can't imagine speaking with another believer about a sin pattern in his or her life. I don't want to lose a friend. I want to keep the peace. And that is not a way to keep the peace. One of the things that is very nice about living in Michigan versus Virginia is that there are no poisonous snakes native to Michigan. None. That's not the case in Virginia. There are three known species of poisonous, venomous snakes that are native to Virginia. The timber timber rattlesnake, the cottonmouth, and then the most prevalent poisonous snake in Virginia, it's found in every single county in Virginia, is the copperhead. Now, the delightful thing about the copperhead is that it's got this tan and brown coloring to it that blends in very nicely with fall leaves that have fallen onto the ground from the trees, walking paths through the woods. The copperhead can sort of slide under those leaves and you would not even know it was there. And every single year in Virginia, people are cleaning up leaves in their backyard and they get bit by one of these snakes or they're walking along a path in the woods and they encounter one of these snakes without even seeing it there. Now imagine if you and I are walking along one of those beautiful trails in the Blue Ridge Mountains at about dusk, and it's starting to get dark, and it's hard to see, and I have a light, and you don't. 
If I'm walking in front and I spot a copperhead on the side of the trail and that copperhead is annoyed that we're there and it's ready to strike and it's hidden by leaves, what do you think I should do about that copperhead there? Well, the obvious answer is I should shine the light on the snake so that you and I can see it and so that we can both keep a safe distance and we can go around it. That's exactly what Paul is calling us to here. Look at verse 13. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. You shine the light on it and you can see the works of darkness now. Now, of course, in the illustration of the snake, you shine the light on it and it becomes visible and you simply avoid it and you go around it. But here, in Ephesians, Paul says that the light of God not only exposes darkness, but it actually transforms the darkness as well. Look at verse 14. For anything that becomes visible is light. So what he's saying here is that the word of God, when applied to darkness and to sin, has two purposes. It exposes it and it transforms it into light. The exposure in believers brings transformation. And so when a believer, when a true believer, someone who has moved from darkness to light, is shown the works of darkness in his or her life, The conviction and the exposure through the truth of God's word is intended to change that work of darkness into something good and right and true. The whole goal of the exposure is transformation. It's change. It's turning you into a person who walks more and more faithfully in the light. And that process of transformation from darkness to light with a change in lifestyle, that is rooted in what God did in Israel in the Old Testament. And that's why Paul quotes the Old Testament in verse 14. Look there. For if anything, for anything that becomes visible is light, therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So Paul here has combined several Old Testament passages And these passages come from the book of Isaiah, and they come from the second half of Isaiah, where God is promised judgment to Israel through exile. He's going to kick them out of the land. But even as he promises exile and judgment, he is promising comfort to them. And so he says, listen, after I judge you, I'm going to do good to you, and I'm calling you to a new way of living. You need to walk differently. And he describes that new way of living as waking up out of the darkness. Let me show you a couple of these passages. Isaiah 52, 1 and 2. Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion. I love this. Put on your beautiful garments. It's almost reminiscent, I think, Paul is almost reminiscent of this when he says to put off and put on. It's language of changing clothes. 
O Jerusalem, the holy city, for there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake yourself from the dust and arise. Be seated, O Jerusalem. Loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. Walk differently. Wake up to who you are now after judgment. Isaiah 60, arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. And so he's using this language in Ephesians 5 to exhort the believers to say, listen, act according to your new standing and wake up and wake up from your spiritual indifference. Stop being unconcerned about the works of darkness, but understand who you are. Wake up and walk in the light. And it's a beautiful illustration of waking up, right? You sleep at night, and when the morning comes, you wake up and you go out into your day and you walk in the light of the dawn. And here at the end in verse 14 in Ephesians, he says that Christ will shine on you. And I think what he's saying there is, you'll walk in what is pleasing to the Lord. Now, there are differences though, right? Between Israel and between us. In the Old Testament, Israel suffered the judgment of exile. And then after the judgment of exile, they were commanded to walk in the light. But the beauty of our situation is that we walk in the light because Jesus suffered the exile for us. And he took the darkness for us. And he paid the penalty for our darkness. And now we have been given light and new life through him. And that's the whole message of the book of Ephesians. You have been given new life. You have been given light in Christ. So it makes total sense for you to wake up, get out of bed, cast off the works of darkness, and walk in light. So now you and I are light in the Lord. And so we walk in light by cultivating discernment, by being attentive to what is good and is right and is true And we walk in light by actively exposing the darkness in our own souls and in the the souls and the lives of those around us that we love. And we expose that darkness with the light and the truth of the gospel. And so today I would say, let the light of the Lord Jesus draw you and draw me toward what is good and toward what is right and toward what is true. And let's walk in that. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we we so desperately want to be people who are, are walking suitable to our calling. We are walking in light. And so we need your help in cultivating discernment. We need the ability to scrutinize and think carefully about our lives and our 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 paths, our attitudes, our desires. And we need the ability to match those things up to your holy word and then to come away with what is good and right and true and walk in that. Father, we need your courage to expose the darkness even in our own souls. 
We often are comfortable with patches of darkness. In fact, we even keep the light away from it so that we can try to enjoy the darkness and think that we can keep this one room dark while everything else is light in our lives. But Lord, I pray that you would give us the courage to expose the darkness and to to transform, to be transformed by your word so that we can consistently walk in light. All of this is dependent on your Holy Spirit working in us. And so we ask for that grace and that favor from you in Christ's name. Amen.